There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 2nd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. In 1966, the school leaving age was raised to 15. In line with that, and much to the surprise of the government of the day, the then Minister for Education, Don Comalli, announced that education would be free for all students in Ireland up to the end of second level. Today, Bernardo's publishes its annual back-to-school survey and 57 years on it is patently clear that education is still far from free. The cost of sending a child to school in first year is €972 in fifth year it is €863 and let's say good morning to the Chief Executive Officer of Bernardo, Suzanne Connolly who's on the line. A very good morning Suzanne thanks for joining us on the programme today. Not much of an increase on last year's costs but a significant outgoing for many parents and many of them, close to a quarter, find it unaffordable. Absolutely. Over 1,100 parents contributed to the survey and some parents are really stressed and really anxious about meeting the back-to-school costs for their children. And we're saying in Bernardo's this should not be the case. I mean, the government did introduce free primary school last year which is really welcomed and what we're hopeful about now with the publication yesterday of the child poverty and well-being program plan and their commitment in that to reduce cost secondary school level that they will introduce free secondary school books now in the next budget and also what we're asking is that they mandate schools to have low cost school affordable uniforms for children at both primary and secondary and ultimately what we want the government to do is end voluntary contributions. Okay, if you can't uh, afford the books, um, you're still obliged, or your child is still obliged to to have the books in order to attend school. Absolutely, and we know from our survey that that 24% of parents at secondary school level, they're taking out loans or they're borrowing from family and friends, and it's 10% at primary school level. And that's massively stressful. And we know as well in this country we've had a cost of living increases, which has put strain on many families throughout the country. And 50% of parents at secondary school level and um, a third of primary said that's added to the stress and the burden. And parents are feeling really exasperated and frustrated because many know about the 2017 circular where schools were asked to make low-cost school uniforms available. And parents are saying, well, why haven't the schools implemented it? And they're also really frustrated that, that at secondary school level, sometimes there's minimal change to the content of, of the books, but they still have to get new books. So out there, Mm. people are really asking for change. So what do you do if uh, you can't uh, afford the books? Well, unfortunately, I suppose what you do is, as we know that parents have done, is is, is they borrow or they cut back on other things. Mm. I mean, mean, that's what parents have to do because they'll always try and 
and protect their children. If they don't, to put the question another way, what happens if the child turns up in school without the books? Well, I would hope that that the, that, that the school has some books mm. available. I mean, some schools do operate rental schemes and I would hope what they do is mm. that if parents haven't been able to provide the school with what, or the child, child with the books, that the school will, will actually very, in a very... Um, non-obvious way ensure that those children have school books. Okay. I mean, what school would, 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 let, children, would let children be, be singled out in that way? I mean, I'm sure schools would have compassion and empathy and not let that happen. But mm. the, the point is that, that other jurisdictions have proper free education and mm. we need to be doing that in this country. Yeah, no, sure. It's a curious question though. I mean, uh, if you're obliged uh, by the state to have school books uh, that are unaffordable for most parents. Uh, it is a, a bit of a, a quandary, isn't it? Uh, there's also a, a legal dilemma and it would also seem uh, as though not much has actually changed in about 60 years. I mentioned uh, Dunca O'Malley uh, introducing free education in 1967 uh, and I was looking at a speech of his uh, in uh, the Dáil going back to 1966 November, the year before free education was introduced in in this country in September of uh, 67. Uh, This was uh, a committee on finance uh, vote uh, at the time. Uh, And in that speech, he said uh, that um, on entering the Leaving Certificate course, books excluding copy books would cost about £12. Any plan for free post-primary education must he felt provide for the supply of free books and accessories yeah. to those who need them. And uh, it's very much in line with your findings, uh, which was 24% of students needing them. He was saying that you could assume it was 25%. Uh, let me just uh, go uh, over a little bit of this. I think uh, you and our listeners might find this interesting in the context mm-hmm. of your survey. He said, in my view, the best approach to the problem and the one most socially acceptable would be to operate the free book scheme through the headmaster of the school the approach would have the advantage of being easy and economical to administer in the aggregate free books would not be supplied to more than 25% of eligible pupils eligible pupils being defined as those attending schools providing free tuition and the headmaster would know the pupils most in need of assistance he said each school would be allocated a quota or a percentage of the total enrolment depending on the area in which the school is situated but he said it would be assumed that about 25% of the entrants to post-primary schools would normally be eligible and this overall percentage would be regarded as a constant factor. That's from November of 1966. Uh, I'm quoting the Minister of Education, Donco O'Malley. Well, he was obviously a, a, a person who was very visionary and very committed to, to children and and parents in need. I suppose one of the things we'd want in Bernardas, though, is the children wouldn't be singled out. And that's why we'd like them to be universally available. Because otherwise, mm. children may know that they're the ones, you know, in receipt of the free school books while their, their, their pals don't have it. And we wouldn't sure. want children to mm. feel to feel poor. No, but I, I, I suppose uh, the context or part of the context of, of me reading that to you as well was that question about what happens if you don't have the books because I, I yes. think the school leaving yes. age was 12. Uh, they wow. raised the school leaving age to 15 on the basis that if you couldn't afford the books, the state would provide them. Yes, yeah, and that's what the state should be doing. And as I said, mm. we're hopeful that, that the state will actually do that now because 
because we we can afford it, and it, and they have they are committing. I mean, the the, mm. the 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 plan introduced yesterday or launched yesterday is saying that they want to reduce the cost of education, and they particularly are focusing on secondary school level. Yeah. So we would expect that in this budget twenty four that they will be introducing free secondary school books. Yeah. And in, we, in we line really in line with the commitment yeah. that was made sixty six sixty seven well, years ago. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a really good point, and yeah. it's a really important reminder about the historical context of this and mm. how long it's taken us. Okay, and you also spoke to the parents of primary school-going children uh, who are not quite as concerned as uh, the parents of secondary school-going children. There's probably little surprise in that because the government has moved in respect of making books free of charge to primary school children. Yes, and that's been really welcomed by parents. However, the issue of school uniforms applies also to, to primary school because of the parents we surveyed, over 70% said that there's, the primary school was requesting uh, or requiring a branded or crested uniform and they just couldn't understand why that was the case. And they really are calling, as I was saying, for schools to make affordable school uniforms available. Uh, but you're right, the costs of primary are significantly less than the costs of secondary. Mm, and particularly this year, uh, I think exactly. actually there was a uh, some data recently that suggested most parents weren't aware that the books would be free this year. Uh, but that's going to make a significant impact uh, in a positive sense on, on the cost, and that's exactly what you want to see for secondary school children. Exactly, and and it finally something has happened because, as you would know, we've been doing the survey for a long time, and we were beginning to really. We've we've quite despondent, as indeed were the parents, and so we really welcomed the free school books at primary level, and as said, we want that momentum now to be continued, because we know how important education is for children. We know that that if children do well, if they feel happy at school, if their parents can support them without having to worry about costs, they, they, they will thrive, but the extra stress put on parents, and indeed by on children, because I'll probably see how stressed their parents are, is not acceptable. So the government needs to deliver on, on its commitment and really make free education free. Why can't I should be having inverted commas on free education. <laughs> yeah, why can't we legislate in respect of uniforms? I heard you speaking in the bulletins earlier on about uh, Rory Quinn uh, when he was Minister for Education and tried to influence schools uh, and ask parents to put pressure on schools uh, to uh, take away uh, the obligation to buy the school uniform with the crest and uh, not having an option of having a cheaper version. Why are we still talking about this today, do you think? You know, I really don't understand it because because it is in the, the government's own, you know, own circular. So maybe maybe we will need legislation. We shouldn't, but maybe we will. Maybe it need, because, but one thing we do want in Bernard, we want it to be mandated because surely schools and principals and boards of, of schools don't want to be putting extra pressure on parents. I mean, surely they understand in with the cost of living that the parents really need to have minimal extra costs. So we would really hope that that, that the, the minister really puts pressure on schools. And it may, it may, she, needs, she needs to think about how, how to, make, to make that mandatory. Mm. Uh, because it uh, hasn't happened. 
And uh, we're talking about a, a year where we're going into a budget with a surplus of 10 billion euro over the next three years, a surplus of 65 billion euro. That's 65 billion euro that we didn't expect to have. We have a lot of money in this country uh, to do what we will with. There's a, a lot of advice about being prudent and not fueling inflation and, and so on. But they're the decisions that the government will have to make it. But it has that money at its disposal anyway. And that takes us perhaps to the issue of voluntary contributions because schools would argue that the capitation grants are too small. If they don't ask for these contributions, they won't be able to afford to turn on the light or the heat etc. The government says uh, they're getting enough. Indeed, uh, the Minister has been quite vocal on that in recent months saying that these contributions have to be voluntary and there can't be a penalty for students uh, by schools uh, denying them access to lockers and so on. But here we face into September and people know as sure as day they're going to be asked for contributions. They may be told it's voluntary, but they won't have much choice. Exactly. And some of the parents um, told us that indeed some of the schools have said that it may say it's voluntary, but actually it's not voluntary because the schools are saying they need, if they really need this money in terms of keeping the school warm and having the lights on, then they're put in a very, very difficult position. So we don't think it's, it's reasonable for the minister to say, you know, that the schools should be putting pressure if the schools can't actually afford to, to run the school. So the government does need to increase the capitation because schools should not be having to ask parents to meet those type of basic needs. Now, having said that, I think also that schools need to give attention to to the reality that some parents just can't afford it. And there should never be lockers not being given to children or journals not being given to children because they need to be be aware of, of the stress that puts on, on parents and indeed what parents will do to try and meet that cost because they don't want their child to suffer psychologically by virtue of not having having been able to give the voluntary contributions. I mean, I remember voluntary contributions when I was a child and, and, and I remember even as a child the pressure that I felt, even though my parents couldn't afford it. So, yeah. And that's not today or yesterday. So I think it's a disgrace that the families are still put under that type of pressure. Yeah. The government needs to do something about it. Yeah. Do you remember back in the day when the priest uh, would uh, shame people from uh, the pulpit if uh, they hadn't made uh, a contribution to the church? Uh, is it at times like that in classrooms where children are named and shamed if their parents haven't paid a voluntary contribution? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't. I have not haven't heard that, that schools would name or shame, but I but I would have heard that 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 parents feel it and they feel it because particularly in smaller schools where they where they feel that the you know the local school administration may know them. Do you know? So it's, mm. it's a psychological feeling of not having been able to pay something and feeling at that point that somehow it's lesser and that should not be the case. Mm. It really shouldn't be the case. Right. Children absolutely shouldn't be put in a position where they're not getting something because their parents haven't been able to afford it. Or indirectly, in any way, if if you don't if you don't have if you don't have a locker, everyone knows who didn't pay the voluntary contribution. Yeah, Mm. yeah, okay. Uh, And if that is. Uh, against uh, I, I don't know if it's the law but the Minister says uh, that, that it shouldn't happen uh, just be careful about how it phrased that but if that shouldn't happen should there be disciplinary action against schools uh, that uh, act in such a way? Well I I <laughs> I wouldn't want to go with that case because I don't think disciplinary action is helpful for anybody. But I think what does need to happen is, may, is the minister, if she's not going to be in a position to, to end voluntary contributions in this next budget, what she needs to be doing is saying, 
to each school, tell me how you are, you are not making this an obligation. How are you making it as easy as possible for parents not to feel ashamed if they're not in a position where they can pay it? So, so maybe that's the requirement. Um, because, because what we want in Bernard is we, we want action on this. We don't want children and parents to continue to suffer because they just can't afford something. That should not be the situation in Ireland today. Okay, uh, just to read uh, another extract uh, from uh, that speech given in 1966 by Duncan O'Malley uh, because there's an awful lot of hardship in the country because of the cost of living that people are are facing now Uh, and it's very difficult to make ends meet for an awful lot of families. Uh, The Minister back in 1966 said in the lower income group there will also be a number of pupils whose particular family circumstances will be such that even with the provision of free tuition and free books, the keeping of them at school will still be a hardship on their parents. When my scheme is in operation and I've had an opportunity to assess the extent of the problem, I shall have to see what special provision for such cases should be made. But here we are, uh, some uh, 57, 58 years on, uh, and uh, we're having more or less the same conversation, Suzanne. Uh, Do you hope that we won't be having this conversation next year? Well, absolutely. I hope we. I will be talking to you, and I'll be saying I'm delighted at the progress that's being made. That's what I really hope, and and I think the government can deliver on that. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Our telephone number, if you want to share our, your thoughts on it, 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email Michael at lmfm.ie. And many thanks indeed to Suzanne Connolly, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Bernardo's Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, politicians or people standing for election uh, should not have uh, their home address published. Uh, according to Green Party, TD Patrick Costello is concerned uh, about uh, a number of protests that have taken place outside of uh, the homes of uh, politicians in recent times. Let's uh, speak to one of those politicians, Labour Party TD for Louth, Jed Nash, uh, who, when in government, had a number of people turn uh, up outside his home uh, protesting over water charges. That was uh, nasty in itself, as uh, I remember it. Uh, but what are your, your thoughts on this? Uh, because I think uh, there's two sides to the coin, isn't there? There's obviously your security, which is, is very important, as is everybody's security uh, in the state. Uh, but then there's access to public representatives uh, and you should be accessible. H- how do you feel about it? Yeah, uh, and, and the thing about it is in Ireland, thankfully, public representatives are um, accessible, um, super accessible, in fact. I think that's by dent of our electoral system uh, and, and the way in which we operate and seek to represent people. Most of us, um, in this constituency at least, and I know it's the case everywhere else, uh, are very much from and of uh, the constituencies that they that we all represent. Uh, you know, I know, for example, you know the three Drogheda-based TDs all would be from the town, uh, synonymous with the town, uh, live locally. Um, people from ordinary enough backgrounds, uh, we would say, you know, accessible to people. Do, do our best. We all have our political disagreements, but they're never personalised. And of course, the problem is, I think, in the last 10 years or so, uh, that discourse has changed and changed um, dramatically. Um, politicians should always be accessible. Um, we all are. We wouldn't be elected otherwise, and we wouldn't be effective mm. representatives who weren't hearing the concerns of the people every day, commun- communicating them back to government and, and trying to drive change. I think the other um, thing uh, that uh, can be said about politicians is that politicians of all ilks 
always welcome debate, robust discussion, uh, and never shy away from it. I've never known a, a politician to shy away from a, a debate, uh, but there's a, a way to conduct. There, 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 there absolutely is, and uh, more focus has, has come on this issue in, in, in recent days because of the intervention made by, by Patrick Costello from the Green Party and the letter he wrote to a junior minister in the Department of Housing and Local Government about the idea of stopping the publication of addresses for election candidates. It's always been the case that your address is published um, with your nomination papers uh, and it appears on the ballot paper. And it's quite concerning that we're even having this debate, Michael, quite frankly, Mm. and why we have to have this Mm. debate. I've no difficulty with addresses being publicly available. Mm. Everybody knows, in fact. Yeah, but you don't he, want to put anybody in danger. Certainly when you become mm. a public yeah. representative, mm. everybody knows where mm. you live. And that's okay and yeah. no, no difficulty whatsoever with that. But it, it's a good idea to change that um, regulation or that requirement to whatever status it has if it means that um, some... Well, what I'm trying to say, take, a, take it back a step or two, I guess. Yeah. If there are some people, even a small number of good people who have something to give, are prevented from running for election because they're concerned that they personally might be targeting their family home, that their family members have nothing to do with politics whatsoever. Um, you know, if they're targeted, if they're concerned about their safety then and their security, then this this should be changed. I know, for example, my own former colleague, uh, former Senator Maria Cahill, um, campaigned to introduce a change in Northern Ireland. There was a requirement to publish addresses for election candidates. Mm. She was, she was a, mem- a co-opted member of uh, the SDLP in a local authority in the North. Uh, she then uh, decided to run for election. There was a requirement then with the um, um, Commission of the North to actually publish your, your home address, given the experience that she had um, uh, uh, over, over many, many years and the targeting concerns she had for her own security. She was reluctant, obviously, for herself and her family to make her address publicly available and a change was made. That change could be made very easily uh, here as well. And if it is a case that this is preventing some good people from becoming public representatives, then I have no difficulty whatsoever with with changing it. And there's Uh, many ways of skinning a a cat and uh, there is a risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here, isn't it? Uh, There's no doubt uh, that uh, these protests are wrong. They shouldn't happen. regardless of how appropriate uh, the protest is being made uh, it's the place where it's being made uh, they're usually when they're outside of the homes of politicians they're not appropriate at all they're vicious they're vindictive uh, and they're so. very threatening and the problem is is that you have people apart from the politicians who shouldn't be threatened anyway inside the house uh, wives partners that's, children that's etc right. and, right. and they're all, subjected all the to that and the neighbours responsibilities of the neighbours as well Mm. um, who didn't choose to live uh, beside a public representative (laughs) so I hear Uh, (laughs) absolutely absolutely Uh, there goes the neighbourhood but I I think there's a couple of points kind of worth making I mean you know I've been more protests and demonstrations Um, some may have gotten hot and heavy over the years Uh, I've been an activist for many many years public representative now for nearly 25 years Michael 10 or 11 years on the local authority and the remainder of that time in the Oireachtas and I've actually managed to straddle I think um, um, 
almost a kind of generation or two in terms of public representation and the approach that is taken to public representation, how the media has changed and critically how social media has changed mm. the political discourse as well. And I think uh, largely unregulated social media has to take its fair share of the blame in terms mm. of the coarsening of the debate and what's appropriate or what isn't appropriate. Mm. And, uh, everybody and, now, and organising these. As you know, mm. Michael, mm. Now, everybody mm. is a journalist. Yeah. Mm. And everybody, it, it's, it's absolutely right that everybody's a view and a perspective and everybody's a right to hold a particular view and um, provided that view uh, isn't isn't um, uh, isn't uh, violent or isn't impacting on, on somebody overly negatively and so on so they're, they're, that, that's the, the the framework of normal human debate and discourse but social media now I think has given license to people to say what they want uh, it's degraded public debate it's dehumanized people uh, who you disagree with and we've lost the capacity to disagree respectfully Um I came in here and I've been coming into the studio for many, many years, mm. Michael. I'm speaking to you on the phone and we often disagree. We disagree disrespectfully. Uh, and we may have had challenging interviews that I'd be concerned about, but we get over that because I understand that you've got a job to do yeah. in holding me to account as a public representative. You understand I have a job to do, uh, especially for a government to make difficult decisions and to try to explain those decisions and why those decisions were made. And we disagree respectfully. Uh, and that's the way it should be. But we've lost the capacity, I think, not just in this country, but elsewhere to do that. And my concern, Michael, is that uh, there are many, many good people who are discouraged from becoming involved in community organisations, yeah. in trade unionism, uh, in maybe business representative groups, even uh, in media, because they're afraid that they may be targeted because of views that they might hold or something they might say yeah. or something that might, might happen. And I have actually... Um, seen uh, some some journalists and experienced themselves being quite afraid of the um, experience they've had in social media, mm. whether they'd be targeted or not physically. Mm. Uh, we've heard heard stories that that's not good for democracy. It's not no, right. I, I, um, I'd be one of them. Uh, I stopped using social media many years ago uh, because uh, the threats uh, were starting to be realised. Uh, people ended up outside the door. There was talk of people outside of my house. Once I stopped using social media, they went away because uh, they, the minds of goldfish. And they're the same people, Michael, who same people who would have... And, and people think now, oh my, my, there's a lot of commentary now on... on um, people on, on protesters appearing outside, you know, some some you know, government ministers' homes and so on. It's, ne- it's never right. Uh, it's not new, not a new phenomenon. I experienced it myself uh, back in 2014, uh, 2015, um, and, and that was addressed and dealt with. Um, and people have a right to protest, and I I I, I would always argue that uh, it's a principle that I would always always defend even under difficult circumstances when, when yeah. maybe some tactics that protests yeah. and outside your office might, might outside deploy. the doll uh, outside the doll yeah. uh, in, in the various ways yeah. that, that, that people understand in but the same way that people shouldn't be practicing or, or protesting outside of hospitals Absolutely. about abortion the same way they shouldn't Entirely. be protesting outside accommodation centres about yeah. refugees but some, some, so some, yeah. some of the same yeah. the, 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 this is the point here as well I mean yeah. if you've got a well-argued political view it's fine Let, let's have the debate uh, everybody's entitled to hold a particular position and to make the case for their position mm. but you know appearing outside a politician's home, a journalist's home, somebody involved in 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 in, in activity that you know something that you disagree. That's mm. just just where, not. Where's on. the solution? Actually, the, you'll find Michael the same people who a number of years ago were appearing outside politicians' homes are now appearing outside uh, centres, uh, housing asylum mm. seekers. Mm. They're the mm. same mm. people as well who are yeah. protesting mm. about uh, uh, trans trans rights, for example. Mm. The same people. Uh, all of the time, so we've got that sort of Venn diagram. So that's 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 yeah. 
course there is. Yeah. Um, so Re- I don't Re- think it's necessarily rebels the, looking for a cause, looking looking for an argument. Yeah. Mm. Um, so what what is the solution? I don't know, uh, quite frankly. But I think and, and, and I and I hope, Michael, that there, there isn't actually a, a reckoning uh, that everybody regrets. We saw what happened in the UK a sm- short number of years ago. Um, actually, in fact, in recent years we've had um, two fatal incidents. Uh, involving politicians because yeah. of that coarsening of of this debate, uh, and um, I, I I I don't have the answer, um, and I'm always careful about how I try to deal with this because I always and anybody who knows me will mm. always say I absolutely respect people's right to 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 protest, but I think we do have to learn again, Michael, to um, respectfully. Disagree. Should we outlaw protest outside of people's homes? We've outlawed, uh, in the process of outlawing, for example, um, so-called protests um, um, that uh, might might take place outside hospitals that are providing yeah. uh, reproductive health services to women. Mm. Um, so uh, it's something that's a live possibility. Mm. And we were told there was constitutional problems with um, that, or there, potentially there, so, there, but there we've may, done it. So there may very well yeah. be. But, 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 but why but, not extend that? But, but you know, it's it's. I think there would be would be constitutional yeah. issues, and I, I'd be very slow. Actually, I'd be mm. very slow okay. to um, propose or support mm. that because of any other ramifications that um, it, it might have. Mm. I mean, for example, where, where where do you stop? Then there are, for example, uh, as I said earlier on. Uh, journalists, for yeah. example, who might feel threatened and legitimately so because maybe of some things mm. that may have been said on social media or people might appear with. So, so okay. where is it? What, what category of worker uh, do you exclude? Yeah. Um, okay. And this is the problem that we, we might end up okay. having. But mm. certainly it's not a debate that's going away. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's I a don't constant know, maybe, issue. Maybe somebody listening may have uh, some suggestion uh, in terms of what uh, the solution is. Before you leave us, uh, just very briefly, I, I know that you're hoping to hear from charities and uh, people working for voluntary organisations locally. That's right, yeah. Um, we, we have um, instigated a, a survey locally uh, with the community and voluntary sector to try and assess uh, their funding needs, for example. A big issue in the community and voluntary sector in this country at the moment in terms of the um, recruitment and retention of staff who do really important jobs, whether it be in relation to you know housing supports, uh, mental health, um, youth work and so on uh, I for a long time campaigned for better rights for Section 38-39 workers people who are doing the work of the state but with voluntary organisations who haven't received a pay increase since the late 2000s uh, their pay generally speaking was pegged with uh, similar workers in the mm. public sector and in the civil service uh, that uh, relativity unfortunately has diminished over the years we need to see that increase because the people providing those services need to be treated better mm. we're trying to assess what the situation is here on the ground in County Louth we've been engaging with the community voluntary sector for some time uh, over the last while now and we want to get a clearer picture ahead of the budget so Mm. we can propose solutions uh, to the problems that they're experiencing in relation to a service provision mm. for the people who depend on those services but also to support their workers. Okay, but it's a survey that you're carrying out uh, and yeah. how to respond to the survey? Yeah, we've actually emailed uh, many of the community okay. voluntary sector organisations in Louth over the last couple of days. Mm. If it's a case that you haven't received that survey and you believe that this is relevant to you, please contact my office on uh, jed.nash at uh, or 0419810811 and we can send you out the relevant information uh, and try to get as many responses as we can to build as clear a okay. picture as possible of the situation on the ground in County Loud. Very good. We look forward to hearing uh, the findings of uh, that survey and thank you indeed for coming in to us today. Jed Nash, Labour Party TD in Louth. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the freshly chopped store in Navan has been broken into. Again, it's run by Leanne and James Power. James is on the phone. Good morning, James, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You caught this tug on CCTV. Uh, tell us what happened, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Um, I suppose we, we, um, we got a call in the early hours of uh, yesterday morning. Um, to say our property's broke, been broken into for a second time um, and that uh, we should get to the scene ASAP. And, some, and when we arrived and reviewed CCTV, uh, lo and behold, we, we were broken into the early hours of the morning. Um, place ramsacked, really. Um, thief got nothing nothing in the property to take mm. and uh, just went off and left the damages. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was a bit of damage. I, I, I saw the video you sent us. Uh, you threw a, a brick at your window, a door window, uh, quite a few times before making his way in. Uh, he looked fairly off it. Yeah, like, you know, the, the, the guards did pick him up and, you know, they've it's no excuse, but look, they, they said he was fairly out of it when they picked him up, you know. And, um, you know, the huge problem we had is that the mess he left behind for our staff to come in in the morning. Like, you know, it wasn't just glass, there was blood everywhere. You know, the place is upside down. And we've young females working for us, you know, and we won't. It's mentality nowadays is that, you know, young girls, we should look after them. So when when they're walking in seeing scenes like this, it, it puts them under um, serious distress, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I don't know. I sort of goosebumps in a bad way watching it. Um, it must have been dreadful for you as the proprietor to watch uh, that uh, violation, that break-in uh, on camera like that. A, a dreadful thing to happen. Uh, but it, it's a sign of the times, is it? Or, or a sign of the times that we live in where you believe there is a, a lack of local guardie? Yeah, no, look, definitely, you know... Um I suppose when I was growing up in I'm Navin born red and red. When I grew up in Navin there was always a presence on the street when I was growing up, you know, and you know, you weren't afraid of the guards but you respected them. I mean, if you done something wrong you were going to be punished. Like we spoke to the guards that came on the scene that morning and you know, in fairness to the guys that there done a great job, but for them there's four guards covering the county of Mead to from Navin to Kingscourt, a population of thirty five to forty thousand people in two squad cars. Mm. Like no no nowhere in in the dictionary it says that's right or you know, it's it's crazy to think that we've only four guards if we have a major incident that mm. um, that we've four guards looking after the county into two squad cars. Um, you know, and these guys are like, the guards themselves. They're at their wits' end. You know, they're investigating robberies. They're you know they're not getting to investigate robberies. I should say because it's basically a build up and a backlog of paperwork and admin for them as well. Um, and look, I had this conversation with the Minister of Justice three weeks ago. We had a meeting in the Arabine Hotel about this. You know, mm. this is her constituency and like her, her kids are going to be walking the streets in Navin, you know, going to the cinema or wherever else. Um, she has the power to do something about it and help these lads are, are in the station and give them the manpower they need and the equipment they need. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was talking to another guard yesterday and he said to me, they had CCTV in Navin, all the new cameras set up, and you know he says it was like having ten extra guards in the station because you could watch everything that was going on. But then they took took that away from them due to GDPR or something like this, something silly, you know. Thinking right. these lads are meant to be protecting us at all times, looking after us, but they won't give them the manpower and the, the equipment to to do the job, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, it's scary because Helen it is, as I said, this is Helen's constituency. She has to say in 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 this and mm. we only sat down three weeks ago and I said look you're putting millions of euros into Navin and 
look, it's going to look great, but what good of it is, is it to us if we can't look after the place and we yeah. can't look after the people coming to it? And what, what did Helen McEntee say in response? Well, she was, she felt this, you know, I, I heard a couple of comments afterwards that she felt the streets were safe to walk, in her opinion. Um, I, you, know, you, you, you see uh, evidence uh, to the contrary every day uh, outside of your shop, do you? Right, where I'm based in Magis Lane, I see drug dealing every single day in Magis Lane. Right. Every single day. And, you know, obviously, we've been robbed twice now, and on both occasions, both of these guys have had, obviously, in my opinion, a bad drug, drug habits, you know. So we're not tackling what's going on in the streets and it's filtering into onto us unfortunately we're getting the, the punishment we're getting broken into we're left to pick up the bill after this you know mm. uh, and you know Helen's saying loads of good things online you know she's saying oh look streets are safe to walk to walk on she feels safe but she's not really walking the streets especially not in Avon anyway not from what I can see um, and you know she's on about insurance and her latest social media post as well for sure we have an insurance policy we you know our access fee is six hundred euros. Um, before you know, we yeah. even look at doing an insurance claim. So, 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 you've, so, so you weren't insured uh, for this latest, latest incident uh, because well, you, you, yeah, it's a catch twenty two. We yeah. are insured, and we can process the insurance claim, sure. but we still have to pay six hundred euros. <laughs> no, yeah, but 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 what did he do? He got away uh, with very little, did he? Two cans of monster. You know, like nothing at all. You know, this guy. Yeah. Just, just so from speaking so you, to the guards, you'd be mad to claim, though. I mean, your insurance uh, obviously would go up if it's a result. It'd be crazy. It's it's, yeah. it's catch twenty two that business yeah. owners are have every day. The, you know, their excess fees are so high, the insurance policies are so high, and then if you do have an insurance claim, they're just going to hike the prices on us the following year. You know, to, yeah. to gain their money back. You know, so what do you do? You, you you weigh it up and think. You know, in the long term, we're probably better off paying this out of our own pocket. Unfortunately, you know. And look, that's a whole other conversation in mm. terms of insurance and all. But like, just to give you a bit of background on the guy that the latest guy that robbed ours. Okay, I spoke to one of the, the, the guards. This guy has robbed about five or six other local businesses in the past year in Navan Town. The guard says there was three bench warrants waiting to be executed on him, and he's still walking the streets. Right. So, uh, and that's because it's petty crime uh, to, to, to some extent as well or seen as petty crime it's not petty crime in your mind quite obviously uh, I think you've said that you feel as though you're being terrorised uh, as a business and as a family for that matter but do you put it down to the drug dealing and the drug users? Uh, look it's not it's not just drugs because obviously not all criminals you know are drugs you, you've got lads that are just out to burgle but the two guys that robbed us, unfortunately, you know, did have drug habits, and um, you know, known to guards quite well. And the, the guards are bringing them to the front, the front of judges, and these guys are getting slaps on the wrist, or you know, they're getting a little holiday in in, in Mount Joy or wherever they go for a couple of days, and it's you know, it's forgotten about then. And then they're back walking the streets to rob another business or to mm. mug someone or to whatever, like. So it's 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 not it's a huge picture here in mm. terms of uh, Navan. There's okay. a real lack of guard presence, lack of respect for the guards, um, and, and something needs to be done. Otherwise, you know, and, and ju- just conclude on that note, if you would, James. What needs to be done? Is it more guardy on the beat? Uh, yes, definitely more guardy on the beat, more guardy uh, in the Navan area in general, and you know, in the station. Uh, if you ring the station now to report a crime to tell you to ring 999 regardless how big or how small the crime is um, you, the, the local feel of the guards in the community is gone when I was growing up there was always a guard you, you'd, you know you'd obviously see a guard walking and you have a chat with him or whatever or you, you know to be at a football match or whatever but 
that that's all gone. That's you know, they've really, really um distanced themselves the guards. And rightly so, they're not getting the manpower, they're not getting the support they need. And the other side of that coin is when when they do get to people uh, to in front of judges, the judges are not handing down the punishment. And mm-hmm. look, it all goes back to uh, obviously uh, way above our pay grade in, in terms of the ministers that we have. And, and we have the Minister of Justice in our constituency. She has the power to do something for us. Mm. And as I said, we sat down three weeks ago with her and explained this, what happened to us. Like, wh- I own two businesses in Avon, me and my wife, we own two businesses in Avon. We hire people, local. we hire local people, you know. All, we lo- use local suppliers. Although it's, it is it is a franchise, but it, it's all local to us, you know. We, we're giving back to this community okay. and, you know, the community's giving back to us in terms of supporting us. All right, man. We're, we're not getting protection that we need in terms of, you know, this theft that's going on and break-ins and okay, going brilliant. away with a slap of the wrist is not good enough, unfortunately. I think that's a message that's been heard loud and clear this morning, James. Thanks uh, for making it uh, on uh, the programme uh, this morning and for joining us for that matter. James Power runs and owns uh, the freshly chopped store in Navin along with his wife, Leanne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some 7,421 people were treated uh, for problem alcohol use last year. This is according to the Health Research Board. And on the line with us is Dr. Susie Lyons, Senior Researcher with the HRB. And a very good morning to you, Dr. Lyons. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's an 8% increase in the number of people who were treated for problem drinking is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Does it mean we have more problem drinkers or is it that more problem drinkers are seeking help? Uh, good morning, Michael. Yeah, so this week the Health Research Board has published their annual report on alcohol treatment figures and it's over a seven-year period from 2016 to 2022. Yes, it is really good that people are reaching out and seeking treatment but unfortunately, what our data shows is that there's really high levels of alcohol dependence among the cases who have been treated. In, in fact, two in every three cases were already alcohol dependent by the time they sought treatment. And that means that their treatment is just that bit more difficult and their road to recovery will be that bit more difficult. So it would be really, it would be much better if people were coming to presenting with treatment earlier before they became dependent. What's the difference? Uh, I mean, if uh, somebody drinks a a lot uh, and they're dependent, how do you define uh, dependency? So for alcohol dependence, there is a, a, um, a number of, of problems or conditions that can, that that show that someone is dependent. So, for example, they uh, a person may already be experienced damage, experiencing damage to their liver. They will probably be experiencing the more severe harms of the alcohol dependence. They may have relationship difficulties. They may have lost their job because of their drinking. But also, they may have a compulsion to drink or they can't stop drinking or they may, as soon as they wake up in the morning, they think about where they're going to get a drink. And also, for example, if they stop drinking, they um, may suffer withdrawal symptoms. So these are all very severe um, 
consequences of 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 of, of harmful alcohol use. And I say, unfortunately, we see that um, many people mm. presenting for treatment and for treatment for the very first time already dependent. All right, uh, and uh, many of them don't stop drinking. It would seem uh, twenty units a day every day. That's the equivalent of ten pints a day for many of the men that you're seeing. That's right. For the, the cases in treatment who who have reported drinking, we see that in many in many times they're drinking more in one day than is recommended by the HSE low risk guidelines for an entire week. So again, this is around the harms that alcohol can do. And for example, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, you spoke about men, but for women, mm. we see that women, um, the women in treatment on, on average were drinking um, 15 standard drinks. That equates to about two bottles of wine in a typical drinking session, which is way above what the HSE recommends for women for uh, low risk guidelines for a week, which is 11 standard drinks. Mm. So, yes, we do see very high levels of consumption. How, how do they afford it? Well, um, that is one of the, I suppose, one of the, you have, with alcohol, you both have physical harms, but also you have social harms. Mm. And so what we do see in the data is that there's very high levels of unemployment. So people have either um, uh, maybe have lost their jobs because of um, uh, their alcohol use, or mm. they will be struggling to afford to pay for the, to maintain their, their, their habits. Mm, because it's not cheap uh, to keep up a habit like that and it's not the only habit uh, that uh, a lot of uh, the problem drinkers you're talking about have. Uh, there's polydrug use, uh, quite a, a lot of problem drinkers using cocaine uh, and quite a lot of uh, problem drinkers using cannabis. Uh, a number of problem drinkers using both cocaine and cannabis as well as drinking. That's right. What we see is that one in four cases also had problem use of additional drugs, what we call polydrug use. Now, again, this is this is a concern because having problems with alcohol and other drugs, again, makes your treatment that bit more difficult and your journey to recovery that takes a bit more time. But of particular concern is the increase in the number of people with um, alcohol problems who are also using cocaine. Um, and that's increased over the seven-year period. In 2016, among polydrug users, three in um, ten cases were using cocaine, but that is increased to six in ten by 2022. Now, unfortunately, in, in, particularly when you use alcohol and cocaine together, 
it brings a unique additional problem because when you use alcohol and cocaine together, they combine in the body to produce a substance which is called cocoethylene. Now, unfortunately, cocoethylene is more toxic than cocaine or alcohol alone. So that person is even at greater in risk of the negative uh, health and psychological effects of alcohol and cocaine. And so it increases risk of, for example, liver damage, heart damage, in that increases their risk of um, impulsive behaviour or seizures. So that yeah, that is really of concern. Yeah, that sounds like a, a death sentence or at least uh, reduced life expectancy. Um, well, indeed, using... Um, uh, Using more than one drug, including alcohol and cocaine, or uh, cocaine and, and and benzodiazepines, does increase a person's risk of um, of overdose and fatal overdose. And, and from our other report, our other health research board report, which we published early this year, we do see that in 2020, 146 people died as a result of, um, uh, uh, died from poisonings where alcohol was implicated. So it. You know, it can have really, you know, really stark consequences. At what stage should people seek help? Well, I mean, in 2022, we know that there was over nearly seven and a half thousand cases sought treatment, but many of them were dependent. So, what is really important is that people reach out much sooner for help to to prevent them becoming alcohol dependent and. There's lots of places where you can find help. Mm. You can contact your GP. You can go on to the HSE, uh, the, um, the website, drugs.ie, or in fact, the HSE have a like a, a confidential helpline you can call and get advice. And I mm. think that's really important is, is, is if you are experiencing any harms or are, if you are concerned. Or if somebody else is concerned, I, I take yeah. it, Susie, yeah. because quite often people will say to people, you're drinking too much or you've got a problem drinking and so the drinker will more than likely say, no, sure, there's no problem at, at all. But if you're being told by people that they're worried a- about your drinking habits and what it's doing to you and the relationship that they have with you, is that the time to seek help? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, oh yes, it is, um, and as I say, and that is what I suppose what we call uh, hidden harm is the, is the hidden harm is the uh, the the effects on other people of a person's drug use, and for people who who have a loved one who might be affected, who have a loved one who is drinking, is that there are also services for them, and they can reach out and look for help and support in their own right, because yes. The, the harm of the harmful problem problem alcohol use not only affects the person affects everyone around them okay is there an adequate level of service so what we do know is that uh, yes almost seven and a half thousand people did, uh, cases were treated in 2022 and really you know, we can't start to address problems until we know what they are and the report that we published this week um, tells us of where we are for 2022 and what needs to be done next. So policymakers need to have evidence to um, to know what steps to take next. And this is part of what this report does. It also will help to show the impact of any policies that have been implemented. For example, there has been a number of policies implemented by the, the Public Health Alcohol Bill, which was enacted a few years ago. And so we'll be able to monitor the impact of that and um, 
to, so policymakers and decision makers have the best evidence to know where to go next. All right. Are we the drunken Irish? Uh, we've uh, a reputation as being a nation of uh, drinkers. Uh, do we know how we compare internationally? Uh, so this this report doesn't uh, show that, or it doesn't doesn't make international comparisons. But I suppose I think it it really is that. Currently, we know for people entering treatment, for cases entering treatment, is that two and three already alcohol dependent. And, and that's, you know, that really is a problem. What we need to see is people just reaching out and accessing treatment before they become alcohol dependent. So, you know, that we can uh, see improvements and actually prevent both the harm to the individual and to the family um, uh, going forward. Okay, Susie, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Dr. Susie Lyons, Senior Researcher with, (coughs) excuse me, the Health Research Board. Beg your pardon. Uh, Let me bring you some of the comments if I can get through them without coughing. Uh, Carl Mornington says, dreadful situation for that business freshly chopped in Navan uh, and uh, for the owners and the other business owners uh, across uh, the towns in uh, the region. However, while more Gardaí would be welcomed, it's with the justice system where the fault lies. Gardaí do their job and then some disconnected judge lets them off, says Cahill. Thank you indeed for that, Cahill, uh, for your WhatsApp message today. Margaret has been texting us and she says who would want to be a Garda in Ireland today? What protection have they got when they go out on a call? They don't know what or who they're going to face. The criminals could have anything on them. The Gardaí are filmed and it's uploaded onto the internet. Yet we have some who don't want Gardaí to wear body cams as that could be regarded as an infringement on civil liberties. If you've nothing to hide, then cameras won't bother you. And what about the Garda's rights? Are they not entitled to be protected as well? It's time Gardaí were given every method and means to deal with thugs. Why should thugs have their civil rights upheld at the expense of the law abiding? It's also time to reduce the age for prosecuting these thugs who should also be named if they're old enough to commit a crime. They're old enough to do the time. No drink or drug excuses should be accepted. It's time the kid loves were put away. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, Another text from somebody who says uh, a local business uh, in Navin doesn't even have security staff. Uh, Staff don't have security, but the staff are always getting abused when the guards are called they don't respond. And the situation uh, is uh, gone to hell. The Minister for Justice, uh, John, says in his message, said some weeks ago that O'Connell Street was safe to walk after that American was attacked. She's not living in the real world. Uh, Another caller says, what or when uh, does, what streets or when does Helen McEntee walk streets to see what's happening? Uh, uh, Somebody else in touch about the cost of going to school, saying the national school my child attends is charging €40 Euro per student for September. I raised the issue with the principal that the minister advised it shouldn't be paid. 
uh, well, it shouldn't uh, be obligatory to pay it. Uh, you can pay it if you wish. Uh, but uh, our caller says that they raised this with the principal. The principal said it must be paid as the government allowance doesn't cover photocopying. Personally, I believe the schools are ripping people off. Uh, and somebody else says, thank God that the children's allowance is not means tested. Thanks if you've been in touch. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, school principals will tell you that uh, they just can't get the uh, staff. Uh, the trade union that represents secondary school teachers carries out uh, a survey of school leaders. Uh, the Red Sea survey found uh, that three quarters of schools uh, that had advertised jobs had no applications for the jobs. 81% uh, said they had to employ at least one person who was not qualified to be a teacher during that year in order to teach the children in the classrooms. The newly elected president of the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland, the ASTI, is Geraldine O'Brien, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Geraldine, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. This has been a significant problem for some time, and I take it from your press statement, it's one that in your new role as president of the ASTI, you hope to take head on. Uh, good morning, Michael, and thank you for having me. Yes, as you said uh, correctly there, this is not a recent problem. This is not a recent difficulty. The uh, recruitment and retention issue in teaching has been a problem for a number of years, but it's now at its worst. It's now at crisis point. So it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed urgently before it really is goes beyond repair. And I suppose you asked there, what are some of the reasons for it? And um, I suppose top of the list would be housing difficulties and the cost of living for teachers. Then there is uh, the workload and schools are really starved of essential resources. So while teaching once upon a time was an attractive profession, um, the, the, um, the attractiveness of teaching is now causing and fueling the teacher shortage because mm. of the difficulties I've just outlined. Okay, so it's become an uh, attractive, uh, but what happens after people graduate? Do they go abroad or wh- what is the situation? Well, they, they probably stay in Ireland if, if, that's, if they wish to stay in, in, their, in, their, in their own native country and, and put on the green jersey and, you know, their friends are there, their family are there. Not everybody wants to emigrate. Some people like to travel, but that's, that's a choice matter. They, um, if they can't get a position in, in their own country, they would feel obliged to travel. Like, they need money to live. Mm. They need money to buy a car. They need money to just socialise, to feed themselves. Yeah, so, and the opportunities the are there, and I take it you could go away for a few years and come back with a, a, enough savings uh, in order to buy a house and maybe take up a teaching role then. Well, see, that's, that's the other reason, or sometimes they, they go, as you say, Michael, and they earn sufficient money to come back and put a deposit, and maybe more than a, a good deposit, on a house, and then they start their teaching. Now, that's okay if they immigrate immediately after graduating. But currently, also, there's a second problem. If teachers teach, say, for three or four years, not on full-term contracts as I was when I started teaching. I had full hours, so therefore I had full pay. The, stu- the graduates of today very often are on eight, nine, ten-hour contracts. 
And how can one live on that? It's it's half money, it's quarter money, it's mm. quarter salary, half salary. Yeah. How can they how can they survive? Never mind live. Mm. So And I don't think your bank uh, manager would look at it very favourably if you were applying for a loan or a mortgage. No, a bank manager wouldn't even entertain it. So then sometimes over maybe a lengthy period of time, ten years, it's 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 insane. They do get what's called a CID, a contact of indefinite duration, which is really the same as being permanent, mm. having full hours. They, they work for two years and then they might decide, I'm never going to save for a house. So they emigrate and the corollary of emigrating is they emigrate, they do five years abroad, but that's not credited then when they come back to Ireland on their pay scale. So they go back the start of the scale again. Right. And as it is, it's a 35-year scale. So Mm. from bottom to top, it's 35 years. Mm. And I take it from our our listeners' point of view, there's huge concern then uh, for the standards of education uh, for their children. Well, see, that that is the impact of it. The um, lack of qualified teachers in the role is impacting on the students in the classroom who are the most important in this. It's the students. It's the students' education. If they have um, a non-qualified person teaching them, then they're not getting the education from the um, that particular subject's mm. uh, best perspective. So it's impacting on the students. So, And the teachers who are trying to do their best, and I've no doubt they do in their unqualified area. There may be a science teacher trying to teach English or an English teacher trying to teach science, you know, the potential. Mm. Uh, that's what's happening. They, uh, they feel under huge pressure then, and that's leading to um, burnout. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you're interested in uh, the results of uh, the Bernardo's survey, that annual survey uh, on the cost of sending children to school. I was speaking with Suzanne Connolly at CEO a little bit earlier on today, and she was saying that the capitation grants to schools should be increased so that schools can actually afford to turn on the lights and the heat and so on and not insist on contributions that should only be made on a voluntary basis. Uh, Would you agree with that? Oh, I would totally agree. Uh, totally agree with that, um, Michael. And now, while I haven't read the um, the, the that that article yet, it's on my to-do list, but I haven't read it. Um, as you outlined there, uh, the, the capitation grants need to be increased. I mean, who is one disadvantaging when they ask for, in inverted commas, so-called voluntary contribution? Mm. You're disadvantaging the disadvantaged. It's no issue, it's no problem. The blink of an eye, those who can afford it will, will pay it. But the people who cannot afford to pay it, they feel, feel sidelined. They feel their children are sidelined. Mm. Now, in, with the best will in the world, management try not to, um, you know, highlight that. I may try to do it very, very discreetly. But the students may know it themselves. They don't like it. They, so no parents should be asked in a public school for a so-called voluntary contribution. The only way to address that is increase the capitation grants. Mm. Now, during COVID, we uh, became very accustomed to living and existing in 
classrooms that were very cold. It was necessary. It was necessary to have the ventilation. But, you know, in some schools, the uh, students are still wearing their, their overcoats, uh, their jackets to stay warm. Mm. How can you study? How can you how can you work in that environment? Okay, but the minister says the capitation grants have been uh, increased. Uh, she's made that uh, clear uh, many times uh, in recent months, and that nobody should be forced to pay a, a contribution in schools. Is it that the capitation grants are still not at a level that they ought to be? Well, well if if the capitation grants were at the appropriate amount to cover all the costs of the schools. Why are they looking for capita- why are they looking for voluntary contributions from parents? So obviously the capitation grants are not at the level they should be at to eliminate, completely elimin- eliminate uh, management of schools asking students for or asking their parents because it's the students, the bank of mum and dad, asking their parents for voluntary, the parents of students for voluntary contribution. Okay. Congratulations on your election, by the way, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. I'm sure we'll hear a lot from you going into the next school term. Uh, and uh, thanks, as I say, for being with us. Geraldine O'Brien is uh, the newly elected president of the ASTI, that's uh, the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Meath County Council has announced uh, that uh, the Meath GAA football manager Colm O'Rourke has been appointed as chairperson of Meath Economic Development Forum. Colm O'Rourke joins us now. A very good morning to you and indeed congratulations on this important uh, appointment and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, You take over uh, at the end of an eight-year strategy that ran from 2014 to 2022 and I suppose the first job of work uh, when uh, the members of uh, the forum have uh, been selected and appointed when you meet for the first time in September is uh, to develop a a new strategy. What are your thoughts going into this role? Uh, Good morning Michael. Well I'm delighted to take up the role and Hopefully we'll have a lot of like-minded people on the forum. It's a bit like the GEA. They w- nobody will get paid for it, but we want to get people uh, of stature either from inside or outside the county. It doesn't really matter that much, but uh, who would uh, bring forward ideas on how to pro- promote Mead, uh, make it a good place to live and work. One of the big issues in Mead is the uh, highest percentage of people who live in the county and work outside the county now, of course, with Proximity to Dublin, that's in some ways natural, but uh, with the huge amount of people who are commuting outside the county for work purposes, uh, it's something mm. that we need to address. And of course, need to is, is it possible? Is it possible for you or the forum to address that? Because it is by design, is it not? It's to do with the national spatial strategy, uh, and in lieu of that strategy uh, being changed or amended in, in some way, uh, County Mead is a place to live and sleep. By design, it is basically a, a motel for people who work in Dublin and commute from Mead or other commuter counties? No, no, not, that's not the case at all. And Mead has the second highest growth in population in the last census, now a population of about 225,000. So, like, there are large centres designated 
in all the towns in need for industrial centres, obviously you're going to have a lot of the service industries as well. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the case. There's a lot of other counties with proximity to Dublin. The obvious example is Kildare, who have a huge amount of industry located within their own county, even though they're close to Dublin. So what we will try to do is, is hopefully help mm. to redirect so, I think it is the case with respect, Colm. Uh, I mean, I think that's the National Spatial Strategy. And I mean, tell the IDA otherwise, because if uh, they're looking uh, to uh, get investment uh, locally outside of Dublin, they'd be more inclined to bring investors to County Louth uh, because of its status than to County Meath. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about it that Louth has an advantage in the sort of uh, hub that's uh, designated from Belfast to Dublin for development. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Mead has to be excluded from this. Like uh, the IDA and Enterprise Ireland are also helping to bring industry and business to Mead. So it's not one or the other. Both of the things can work very well together. Mm, If you look at the number of IDA visits, uh, I think Mead is quite often overlooked uh, for... Yeah, well, that is the problem. But like you you have to see the development and the recent uh, opening of Mead or Facebook and Tani has brought a huge bonus to Mead. The big issue for counties surrounding Dublin uh, is the rates bill, because if the rates bill is low with the council, obviously they are not in a position to improve quality of life measures for the people living in their areas. And that's a a big issue, I think, in most of the towns surrounding uh, Dublin, and it's obviously something that we would like to improve. Mm, I don't know if Facebook or Meta or, or their employees know that they're actually in County Meath uh, because uh, they're in Clonay and many of them would consider that to be in Dublin, perhaps a, a cheaper part of Dublin to do business. Well, whether they, whether they know what county they're in, there was a lot of involvement from people in Meath to try and ensure that they did come into the county. I don't think a lot of the people around Clonay and Dunboyne and those areas would like to be classified as Dublin. And <clears throat> it's up to us to ensure that uh, there's a clear designation of Mead as a county which is open for business and where people who are in the county and who are already doing business, and there's a huge amount of Indigenous Irish-owned industries who probably have not sought or got any support at any times in the past, but maybe they could get some help from local authorities that they could... Uh, uh, expand somewhat in the coming years. So it's an all-encompassing brief. Uh, obviously, we would like to focus on a few areas, and I think the obvious area for any county to uh, focus on would be development of green energy, a green economy, and try to promote that in, in Mead. All right. And what about the rail line? I, I take it uh, it's a, an eight-year term, uh, and indeed uh, that uh, the board will sit for eight, eight years. Uh, do you hope that uh, in that time frame uh, there'll be trains coming in and out of Navan? Yeah, absolutely. But we won't, the forum now won't be sitting for eight years. It'll be a two-year stint with a, a review at that time and hopefully uh, our progress is measurable in, in that regard. But obviously the infrastructure is a huge issue in need as it is in a lot of counties. The lack of a rail link is a huge and significant factor. We would like to see that that speeded up, but that's obviously something that takes place at a higher level. But even the road structure, the bus corridor, 
all of these things need to improve to ensure that uh, Mead is seen as a business-friendly county. Mm. And why would you argue it is a business-friendly county? Well, I think that the IDA have their industrial estates, but there is uh, <clears throat> huge social infrastructure, which is, I think, one of the most important things. When Google located a huge plant in Poland where they were spending $40 billion and they took the decision last year, one of the main things that they did was the quality of life associated with it. So I think that we have to move beyond just location of industry, location of different types of businesses, and look at the social infrastructure which is associated with it and improve on that. And as I say, it's a chicken and egg situation with councils. Uh, The more rates the council has, the more facilities they can provide. But I think that we need to improve on that aspect of life, like sporting facilities, libraries, walks, greenways, all these things have to be key parts of a strategy for the future. Okay, what about uh, the IDA site in Drogheda? Many people would uh, argue that that should be relocated uh, to the County Louth end of Drogheda rather than the County Meath end of Drogheda because it would be far more successful if it was resituated. Yeah, well, I don't think uh, people should get into a battle between counties. We can leave that on the football pitches. No, that goes back uh, to the uh, national uh, spatial plan. Yes, absolutely. But uh, I, again, uh, there's no reason why any industry cannot be located in Mead and have the same benefits of being in the, that corridor that we have spoken about. It's just a matter of uh, whether the IDA are willing to promote Mead in the same way as they are promoting the surrounding counties and, of course, the National Spatial Strategy ordains otherwise at the moment. All right. Uh, speaking of football jerseys, I think Drogheda is a fine example of uh, where people's loyalty is perhaps a, an obstacle in terms of realising potential uh, because, uh, obviously, the town uh, straddles County Louth and County Meath. Uh, there's been uh, many uh, people who have said that it should come under one local authority that uh, it should be policed uh, by one guard division and so on. Have you any thoughts on how the two local authorities work in relation to Drogheda? Well, you've had the same problems with part of Waterford which straddles uh, into the Kenny and the same sort of issues have arisen there. I think most people when they're in one county would prefer to be in it. But I think it's an issue there which needs mutual cooperation which is going to be a benefit to all the people who live in those areas. Like the creation of employment shouldn't depend on the county. So any business, whether it's in need or loud, it wouldn't make that much difference to me. And if uh, our economic forum could be a benefit in any way to Drogheda, whether it's Drogheda in loud or Drogheda in Mead, uh, I, I think our forum would be very helpful in that regard. OK, given that so many people in the county commute, Uh, To Dublin for the most part, but I'm sure to many corners of uh, the country for work because the work isn't available for them at home in County Meath. Uh, What what about um, working uh, remotely? Uh, Is that something that you think will be on your agenda to create more potential for people to do that? Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about it. It's probably the way forward. And again, the provision of these type of hubs where people maybe can come together and uh, the other thing is some small start-up enterprises like the vast majority of businesses are small family-owned businesses in the country. So uh, while 
Some people may think of this economic forum as an attempt to attract large industry into the county. I think we should also be very much focused on small units, um, creating hubs where people can work from home or work in a place nearby and where there is support for start-up enterprises. Mm. Um, do you believe uh, that County Mead gets uh, enough um, support uh, from national government uh, and that there's uh, enough focus on the county in terms of bringing uh, employment to people locally uh, through the IDA or other means uh, and if not uh, is that something that the forum will work on changing? Yeah well Michael it is a fact that we we haven't got the same benefits as other countries from either Enterprise Ireland or the IDA because of different strategies which have been adopted but the other thing is the most important aspect for the development of any county or any town is self-help and that's the thing that we are going to focus on. We've been left behind a little bit in terms of infrastructural development but that's in the past. We must look forward and try and improve things now. Okay, we heard from local business earlier in the programme today. James Power of Freshly Chopped in Navan was telling us how he uh, feels terrorised by uh, antisocial behaviour thugs and uh, burglars, criminals uh, and drug dealers outside of his shop every day. Has met with the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, three weeks ago. Asked her if anything can be done about this. Says that his views are are not unique, uh, that he he knows that many businesses in Avon feel the same and that it's making it close to impossible for them to continue because of uh, the attacks that they're coming under. Uh, Have you any thoughts on that? Well, uh, antisocial behaviour is a widespread problem. Every trader in Dublin City has been complaining about this. And obviously it's a Garda matter and the Garda division in the area, it's up to the chief superintendent in that area to ensure that that doesn't take place. But it's an issue, obviously, that uh, is of concern to people and it's something that we will certainly be making representation on. Mm. Uh, to the Garda commissioner? Yes, absolutely. That you and be of look- course the Minister, the minister for Justice is, uh, lives in Mead as well. Mm. Uh, and uh, that you'd be looking for more Gardaí in Navan or in all of the towns in County Meath? I think even the Gardaí would admit themselves that the numbers that they have in the force overall at the moment are not what they should be and what they want them to be. And there is a recruitment drive to increase the figures over the next uh, couple of years. So like mm. everybody is looking for extra Gardaí. And the main thing most people want is greater visibility on the ground. I think that's the their greatest deterrent to antisocial behaviour. Oh dear. Oh dear, the line has uh, just dropped out on us there. Uh, apologies for that. I'm really not sure what happened there. We've uh, lost Colm O'Rourke uh, from the line. Uh, but uh, after listening to James, one of our, our callers who's 78 years of age, this is uh, James Power of Freshly Chopped in Navan, uh, who we were speaking to earlier on. Our, our caller says, after listening to James and others, I will not take the town bus down to Abbey Road after being accosted by a woman asking for €2. And not only that, she followed me across the road and blocked my 
passage. I warned her if she didn't get away, I'd have the guards in two minutes and only then did she back off. I, I'm 78 years of age and disabled and uh, I, I need uh, the bus to shop, but afraid to get a, a, on the bus. Uh, and we've heard uh, many concerns uh, indeed from uh, the MBRU, National Bus and Rail Workers Union, uh, about anti-social behaviour on uh, the buses in Navin. I'm told actually we have Colin O'Rourke uh, back on the line. Uh, there certainly seems to be a perception that Navin isn't safe. Uh, have you any thoughts on that? Do you consider the town to be safe? Uh, the minister said she believes it's a safe town to walk around in. Yeah, well, I live in Navin, Michael, so I have first-hand experience of this. Uh, I suppose maybe I, I, uh, I'm I not out that late at night, I suppose, when most antisocial behaviour takes place. There is problems, there's no doubt about that, and I think once there's a perception among people, and particularly old people, mm. that they can't go down the town in peace and quiet or get on buses, I think that needs to be really tackled. Uh, people need to feel that they can move around safely and in an environment which uh, they're, they're feel welcomed and safe. It's something that really needs tackling at a higher level, but it can only be tackled with extra members in the force and extra guardy on the ground. But also it's an education programme. We do have issues with uh, drug taking. Those sort of things too mm. are... It's, it's a fairly broad canvas to try and solve problems like that. Mm. Well, it certainly is. Uh, uh, but obviously part of uh, running a business uh, in terms of that uh, lady, I take it it's a lady who won't get the bus into town. If she doesn't get the bus into town, uh, she won't be shopping. Uh, and indeed, business will suffer as a result of that and it won't be attractive to do business. Can I ask you, uh, as uh, somebody who... Uh, obviously comes uh, from a, a GAA background uh, when you enter into a, a tournament uh, perhaps your goal is to win the championship uh, what's your goal as you take on this role as uh, the chair of the economic development board well I think first of all Michael that we have to be able to look back after two years and measure what sort of progress we have made and measure progress in terms of maybe numbers in employment, uh, maybe m- numbers in start-up businesses, uh, some idea that new businesses are coming down the line. If we're not able to do that and see that there's some of those things, improvement of infrastructure for the citizens of the county and uh, maybe a, a serious improvement in green energy and the green economy I would think that it wouldn't be a success if we can't do that. Okay, well look, best of luck uh, in the role. Uh, it's uh, a hugely important role for everybody listening to us uh, this morning and uh, we'll be hoping to hear from you over the course of uh, the next couple of years and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Morning. Much appreciated. That is Colm O'Rourke, who's the chair, the new, newly appointed chair of uh, the Meath Economic Development Board. Michael Reed on LMFM. So, a couple of uh, comments uh, that we haven't come to as yet. Ellen in touch with us saying, Michael, free school books are great. I have two grandchildren. Uh, they still have to pay €40 Euro each for art and crafts, but still have to buy 
colouring pencils and everything else that's needed. Thanks indeed, Ellen. I was uh, reading a part of uh, that 1965 speech from Don Comalli earlier in the programme. And he was talking about the cost of copybooks back then uh, and that they had to be considered and that there is so much uh, in terms of the cost of sending children to school. Uh, John in Trim has been in touch with us uh, about... Um, the um, I think it's anti-social behaviour he says nip it in the bud Michael change the law to stop the untouchables put people in to do uh, the work uh, says John thanks uh, very much uh, John for that now uh, if you were listening there a moment ago you'd have heard Colm O'Rourke uh, as the new chair of uh, the Mead Economic Development Board talk about green energy and how that will be one of uh, the key priorities that he will have over the next couple of years and a green agenda that he hopes to bring to County Mead business. Humanity is in the hot seat. Today, the World Meteorological Organization and the European Commission's Copernicus Climate Change Service are releasing official data that confirms that July 2023 is set to be the hottest months ever recorded in human history. Right, now you'll be hearing that again over the years on Reeling in the Years uh, because it really was a, a dramatic month everywhere else, of course. <laughs> the hottest month in July, the wettest, most depressing month in this country. Uh, but of course, it is extraordinary weather that we're having and that all has to do with climate change and indeed the warming of the planet. That was Antonio Guterres, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations, speaking the other day uh, as July was coming to an end Uh, but whether it's the torrents of rain that we've been experiencing or the way that uh, the European Union or the European continent particularly southern Europe has been burning or melting uh, there are consequences to this freak weather that we're living with the consequences are clear and they are tragic children swept away by monsoon rains families running from the flames workers collapsing in scorching heat. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying and it is just the beginning. Okay, I think if we could get some of the rain, just maybe a half or a quarter of the rain that fell here in July to fall across parts of the European Union, we'd put some of those fires out. But what is happening? Is the planet melting? The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. So the time has come to act. In fact, uh, that came, time came a long time ago. It is still possible to, meet, to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change, but only with dramatic 
immediate climate action. Okay, that's Antonio Guterres. Claire, thank you for your call. She says the return to school is a huge financial burden on parents. She finds uh, that she's putting money aside out of her pay packet nearly all year round in order to meet the costs. Davy, thanks for your call too. He says schools should be made to drop the voluntary contributions. We all know it is not voluntary and all parents feel extra pressure in order to pay it. Anne, thank you too for your call. She says the cost of education in this country cripples parents. Government needs to do more to make education more cost effective. Well, thank you indeed for your call if you've been in touch with us today. A lot of people obviously worried about the return to school next month and all of the costs that go with it. As to whether school books will become free for secondary school going children, this year or the year after well only time will tell and I think we're going to have a very interesting autumn for that matter when the schools look for the contributions and people say well I'm not paying it Uh, we heard the minister say many times over uh, that we shouldn't be forced to pay it and what the response of the schools will be at that stage anyway that's all we have time for for today Maggie McGuire research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael Godwilling we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.